Hello and welcome to the Reformational Anglican podcast, uh, the podcast that delves into the riches of Reformational Anglicanism for the good of the church today. I'm your host, Sam Pilo, and with me here is Ryan Scott. Uh, we've just come to the the end of a, a busy semester, um, busy period of essay writing, and we're going to going to share some of the fruits of that with you today. Um, so we're going to we're going to be thinking today a bit about the atonement. Um, what is it that uh, that Jesus achieved on the cross? What does his death do for us? Um, and how is that? How does that help us? How does that save us? How is that applied to us? Uh, so Ryan's going to be um, sharing some of his thoughts with on thoughts with us on that. Sure. Um, yeah, so obviously a really important topic and it's an interesting one. It's one that's kicked around a lot. Uh, one of the reasons, I guess, why it's kicked around is because um, even amongst uh, those people who maybe agree with the things like the ecumenical creeds, um, the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed and the Athanasian Creed, uh, they still might not agree on the sort of why of Jesus's death. So all people who uh, are within creedal orthodoxy will certainly agree on the facts of Jesus's death, but there's still this debate sometimes actually, why did Jesus die? And I suppose the question that uh, Jesus's death sort of prompts us to ask is what is the relationship between one man dying on a cross 2000 years ago? What is the relationship between that and our salvation the forgiveness of our sins, all of those sorts of things. So, yeah, it does seem to be this sort of interesting relationship. It's not immediately intuitive why somebody dying on a cross would mean that we can be forgiven of our sins and be with God forever. So, yeah, it does prompt us to ask those kinds of questions. Great. So I, I guess one of the one of the things we want to do in the podcast is think how do we approach this as reformational Anglicanisms, Reformational Anglicans, rather. Um, I guess one place we might might begin begin by looking is the Thurnan Articles. Is there anything in there on uh, on on a particular theory of the atonement or a particular understanding of what it does, and what it is? Certainly. So um, I found it helpful to see just in Article Thirty One. We read there that the offering of Christ once made is that perfect redemption, propitiation, and satisfaction for all the sins of the whole world, both original and actual, and there is none other satisfaction for sins but that alone. So it's an interesting um, statement uh, that we see there in Article 31 of the 39 Articles. And Martin Davy, in his commentary, writes that in terms of the understanding of this article, what is being taught in Article 31 is that as sinful people we need at redemption and propitiation and satisfaction in order to be with in order to be saved and to be with God forever. So the language of redemption, propitiation, satisfaction picks up on yeah three different aspects as those of our salvation. The idea of redemption comes from the sort of the marketplace. Um, so the, it's always connected with the idea of being bought back. The idea of propitiation. Uh, is a sort of idea that we need the wrath of God to be propitiated, to be turned away, in the same way that maybe the a husband is, you know, has an angry wife, maybe, and uh, if he's coming back to the angry wife, he, he might propitiate the wife uh, with, you know, some flowers or something like that. Um, so we need propitiation um, from the wrath of God, and then we need satisfaction. 
So the history of these terms is, is quite interesting. Satisfaction, that language of, of satisfying God's justice, goes back to Anselm of Canterbury, who forwarded this idea of our satisfaction. Um, and the idea there was that humanity, through our rebellion against God, have dishonoured God. We've treated God uh, in a way that's sort of deeply dishonouring to his infinite majesty and character we ignore him we um we try and use him for the things that we want to use him for and we sort of treat god as if we know better than him and these are all things that are dishonoring to the character of god and don't respect the fact that god is uh, who he says he is in the bible and his majesty is infinite and so anselm had this sort of idea well if i uh, have dishonored god then i either need to pay back to him what i owe for that a sense of for that dishonouring, or I need to take the punishment uh, that I'm due uh, for dishonouring God. And Anselm sort of said, "Well, we, you know, we can't uh, take the punishment and live. And so the only kind of other option is that either we pay back what is owed to God, or uh, someone else pays that in our place." And so in the incarnation, we see Jesus coming to earth as the God man and his infinite, uh, all of the infinite worth of the deity uh, dwells within the person of Christ in his humanity and in a bodily manner. And so whenever he died on the cross, he was able to offer up in a sort of positive way. He was able to offer up his life and the infinite uh, worth of his shed blood on the cross and that payment. And that alone would be enough to uh, pay back to God what we sort of owe him for what we've kind of done wrong. So that's the sort of language of, of satisfaction, um, quite a sort of interesting one. And what that sort of picks up on is sometimes there are debates around the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. What really was going on in the sacrificial system? Was it that the positive payment of an animal was being offered up? So the you know there's the verses in the Old Testament that talk about a a spotless, uh, blemish-free lamb that needed to be, or animal that needed to be offered up in our place? Uh, was it that sort of positive idea of paying something back to God? Or was it more the idea that the sacrifice that was being made in the Old Testament was uh, a penal sacrifice so that the through the death of the animal, uh, a punishment was being taken uh, by the animal kind of in our place for our sins? And there are different readings of that. Uh, more Catholic authors, uh, writers tend to sort of emphasize this positive offering up of the blood, uh, whereas sort of more evangelical authors tend to emphasize the penal nature of the death that was taken in our place. And that obviously relates us back to the death of Christ and what was being, what was supposed to sort of happen in there. And yeah, I've sort of wrestled with this uh, a little bit. And I do wonder if we would we be able to sort of hold both together um so we think about jesus what did he do for us on the cross well he did live a perfect life he never sinned and uh, on the cross that perfect life was offered up to god and at the same time as we'll come on to we also believe that he took the punishment for our sins on the cross but that offering up of a perfect life was actually the basis for our justification before god so from the protestant reformation we believe that whenever um Jesus lived his perfect life when he died and then was resurrected. All this happened so that his perfect righteousness can be imputed to us and accepted on our behalf. 
Um, and at the same time, there's there's the other, the other aspect of imputation, which is that our sins were imputed to Jesus. Uh, our sins were imputed to Jesus uh, and he took the punishment uh, that we deserve on the cross. So, yeah, I do wonder if we can we can bring both of these uh, two things together. The other language in the New Testament that picks up, or not in the New Testament, sorry, almost the New Testament, the Book of Common Prayer, uh, that picks up on uh, this language is the prayer that I'm sure many of us know in the communion service. And it says, Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who of thy tender mercy didst give thine only Son, Jesus Christ, to suffer death upon the cross for our redemption, who made there by his one oblation of himself once offered a full perfect and sufficient sacrifice, oblation and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world and did institute in his holy gospel, command us to continue a perpetual memory of that his precious death until his coming again. And so this, yeah, this language of oblation, satisfaction for our sins is uh, is brought into the Book of Common Prayer in the communion service. The reformers then, they, whenever they looked at this language, they uh, did talk about satisfaction more in that sort of penal sense uh, that Christ satisfied divine justice whenever he bore our punishment on the cross. And I do think that this gets us sort of into the, the second part, which is kind of the issue of propitiation, uh, the turning away of God's anger. How is it that God's anger is turned away? The doctrine of penal substitution would say that God's anger is turned away uh, from us uh, by Christ actually bearing the punishment on the cross for our sins and if, I do think there's good New Testament biblical uh, good New Testament biblical basis to this we think about Galatians where it says uh, Paul picks up on the fact that uh, cursed is it the Old Testament says cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree and uh, the Apostle Paul makes it very clear that Christ uh, bore our the curse of the law for us whenever he died uh, on the cross for us and so that's one of the main things that's going on in the cross and yeah, certainly that idea of Christ bearing the curse for us, it's really the same thing as Christ bearing our punishment and uh, bearing ultimately the wrath of God on the cross. So yeah, that gets us into sort of the, the doctrine of the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. Yeah, I guess I just have a couple of thoughts. Um, every time that we're in your house, there are some lovely flowers there. So I don't know if that's to do with the a positive offering up or the turning away of wrath. Um, Couldn't possibly comment. Yeah, I, I guess there, there are some very clear... The New Testament obviously speaks a lot about the cross, and I guess people debate some aspects of particular language in the Greek that we'll not get into. But you know, Romans 3 talks about Jesus is offered as a, a sacrifice of propitiation to be received by faith. Um, Whereas he himself bore, bore, yeah, bore our sins in his body. Uh, but even in the Old Testament, you've got Isaiah 53, uh, where you've got the suffering servant who, who surely he bore our pain, um, took up our pain, bore our suffering. Uh, he was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Uh, and the punishment that was on him brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. And that seems, uh, it seems to be very clear that we've done wrong and Jesus has been punished uh, in our place. And I mean, we trace a lot of this back to to the reformers, but as you say, Anselm uh, has a slightly different conception. Um, but even in the early church, there's there's much talk of the the great exchange 
which seems to be Jesus, Jesus stepping into our place and dying our death for us. Um, so I think there is a, a sense of propitiation that that's, uh, it's hard to get away from. Yeah, certainly. Well, I, I think any Orthodox Christian has to recognize the fact of propitiation. Um, yeah, some some sort of turned away of God's anger. And in term, I guess penal substitution is one model of propitiation. I think it's the right the right model. Um, and on that issue of, you know, what did the early church even believe? J.D. Kelly phenomenal patristic scholar his view was that um pain substitution was one of the sort of three most dominant understandings in the early church and it was the most dominant in the soteriology of uh, the eastern church in the fourth century so yeah it's not sometimes the, the criticism is made that this doctrine only arrives with the reformation but kelly who is an anglo-catholic scholar um is wanting to push back on that and say no actually this realist sense that whenever Jesus died on the cross, he bore our sins and took our punishment. Actually, that has been with the church from the very beginning. Uh, so I guess penal substitutionary atonement uh, often gets a bit of a bad uh, a bad rap. People make comments about, you know, it's like um, cosmic child abuse, you know, the, the angry father taking out his, his, his wrath on his son, uh, instead of you know misplacing it, misdirecting it towards his son, how how would we respond to that? Are there maybe other doctrines, maybe a view of the Trinity, uh, things like that, that help us to to maybe navigate some of those criticisms? Yeah, I think, and this problem does. Some of these issues come from both liberals and from sometimes from evangelicals who put forward a, almost a caricature of penal substitution. I think we need to be careful with our illustrations and analogies whenever we talk about penal substitution one of the ones that i've heard that is quite quite troubling is uh this sort of bus that can't be stopped and there's a driver and uh, he's you know flying down a hill and the brakes stop working and there's a big crowd of people in front of him and sort of he he, he turns the bus around and he and he gets it down onto a sort of side lane to avoid hitting this big crowd of people and then what do you know there's this other person in the road who just happens to be hit along the way and then he realizes actually that's his own son uh, which is quite a grotesque picture mischaracterization of of penal substitution firstly it it mischaracterizes the wrath of god the wrath of god is a settled just completely non-arbitrary revulsion of god good revulsion of god against uh, the evil of, of mankind. It's not something that is just out of control uh, in the way that we sort of maybe fly off the handle if we get kind of angry. That's not the way God's anger is at all. And then there's this idea that, you know, the sun just got caught up uh, in the in the in the accident instead of the fact that actually the sun willingly put himself forward in order to purchase for himself a people uh, who would be glorified. Yeah, who, who, would, who would glorify him. So yeah, we've we these we've these problems with illustrations. Um, sometimes um, even from from those who claim to believe in penal substitution. And then we've also kind of from the liberal side got these uh, attack continual attacks on penal substitution. Uh, that's yeah, cosmic child abuse or, or something like that. And this um, these these misunderstandings, I think they they fail to pick up on a lot of things. Uh, but they are quite helpful because they, they enable us to think, what actually do we believe by the doctrine of penal substitution? 
So whenever we listen to some of these objections against the doctrine, we can go back and we can think, well, uh, what aspect of the theology of the New Testament uh, can we appeal to in order to answer some of these objections? So with the idea of cosmic child abuse, um, yeah, I think we need to speak up to the fact that Christ's offering of, of himself on the cross was completely of his own, yeah, his own initiative along with the Father. And he did it in order to purchase a people um, who would exist for his own glory, which is very different from the idea of an abusive family member just kind of taking out his anger upon an unfortunate yeah, member member of the family. Uh, there's other sort of issues to do with uh, violence. People are sometimes troubled by the idea that if we believe in penal substitution, we're believing in the, what's sometimes called the myth of redemptive violence. And it's said that whenever violence is employed, it only sort of begets the very thing that it seeks to destroy. And for some people, they say, well, penal substitution actually says that God is the source of violence. And I think in response to that, we'd want to say, well, uh, we live in a violent world and we live in an unjust world that's full of evil. And if God actually needs to overcome, uh, if he needs to be just and overcome the problems in the world, then he needs to uh, sort of, in many ways, do violence to uh, evil in order to overcome it. He needs to actually comprehensively punish it and defeat it and remove it in order for us to live in a world without without violence. Um, Athanasius had a had a point whenever he set up the the issue of the atonement. Um, which which was I think quite helpful. So he he writes about how uh, you know we have sinned against God. God repeatedly says that sin must be punished with death, and because God is truthful, he cannot sort of fail to fulfil that threat. But if he was to bring death to all who had sinned, then he would fail to fulfil his purposes for creation. And Athanasius writes that both of these possibilities are sort of unthinkable, and so God remains utterly faithful to his character through the means of an atonement. And I think that's really one of the things that's brought out with penal substitution is God is the faithfulness and the truthfulness of God that is upheld by the doctrine. We believe that God is utterly just in all that he says. He cannot fail to fulfill his justice. He also fulfills his faithfulness and his love for us and for his purposes in creation. So yeah, the character of God is, is really, I think, elevated and exalted. With the doctrine of penal substitution, and then one other point that might be worth kind of touching on is well two a couple of other points that might be touched upon one is that it's still unjust so no matter if you're in a courtroom and somebody else stands up and says i'll take the punishment for somebody else that's still fundamentally unjust because that uh you know i can't take the punishment that's that is due to somebody else if i didn't sort of commit that crime and here we need to look again to the New Testament and what the New Testament says about our union with Christ and what imputation actually means. Because the issue of you know, imputation is something that only God can ultimately do. Only God can take the record of our sins and fundamentally place them upon Christ. That's a miracle, a supernatural event that only God can do. And only God can take the, the record of Christ's righteous life and impute that to us. So it's a miracle supernatural thing that only God can do. Uh, it's not a sort of legal fiction where God just treats us as if we are righteous 
uh, or treats Christ as if he had sinned uh, when really he was righteous. Of course, he was righteous in that he never did anything sinful himself. But actually on the cross, Jesus did bear our sins. The New Testament says he became sin for us on the cross. Our sins were truly imputed to him. Uh, it's not a sort of ontological or legal fiction. And the other, yeah, the other, so that's the issue of imputation. The other issue is the one of our union with Christ. So the Bible repeatedly, the New Testament repeatedly describes us as being united with Christ. And John Owen, the Puritan, whenever he speaks about this, um, actually speaks about our union with Christ being so foundational that we can actually say that in Christ we were punished. So it's there is a very real sense that because we are so closely united with Christ, uh, because the union is so close, not only is imputation something that can happen, but actually we were fully punished in a way that satisfied God's justice. Uh, so again, God's justice is not bypassed through the means of atonement, it's actually vindicated and satisfied. And then one other objection that sometimes comes up is, well, doesn't this doctrine pit the father sort of against the son? And doesn't it just divide and, and, and tear up our doctrine of the Trinity. And that's a very serious accusation, um, if it's true. And so we need to think yeah, properly about this. But I think here we can kind of appeal to uh, sort of a doc Augustine would have talked about the notion of inseparable operation. So inseparable operation um, is rooted in another doctrine of the Trinity, which is uh, the perichoresis, or sort of mutual indwelling. And the sense here is that whenever the Father does something, the Son and the Holy Spirit also sort of secondarily do it. Uh, or if the Son does something, then the Father and the Spirit also sort of secondarily do it because they're one in being. And because they're one in being, then uh, any work of one person of the Trinity is also sort of the work of the whole Trinity. So the, the Trinity can never be divided in that sense. So in that sense, we can speak about how on the cross, actually God kind of turned his anger in on himself. Uh, God kind of propitiated himself through the means of atonement. It's not that God takes a third party that is completely distinct, uh, but actually, yeah, God turned his anger in on himself uh, that uh, in a sense, Christ was satisfying his own justice uh, at the cross um, and the father was never kind of separated or torn away from the son on the cross. You know, that would be an impossibility. Uh, but really, you know, through the whole through the whole time on the cross, uh, the Trinity was completely intact. The Trinity wasn't sort of ripped apart. Sometimes you hear people say that on, on, the, on the cross, God was not one. That's not true. God remained one, one in his being and one in his essence. But uh, he did turn his anger in on himself. He propitiated uh, the wrath of his own character. And in that sense, um, yeah, he, he upheld and vindicated his own uh, being so i think yeah these these objections that we get to penal substitution are actually whenever you, you think through them they're actually extremely helpful because what you get as a result of thinking through the thinking through these objections is a sort of nuanced doctrine uh, which is thoroughly biblical and it's uh, impeccably just and it's good it's uh, it vindicates the character of god and it presents us with a god who is truly worthy of our worship uh, and who understands the evil of this world and who is able to speak into the evil of this world in a way that is convincing and true to yeah true to the way that things really are i think just to come back on something you you said briefly there talking about jesus satisfying his own justice it's been 
talked about, I mean, Mike, uh, Mike Reeves is, is brilliant on this um, over at Union in Wales. When we look at Jesus, we see what God is like. And sometimes there's a, there's a fallacy of looking at Jesus and thinking that that God is somehow different or, or Jesus is the, the nice, friendly son. But behind him is something more sinister. Behind him is the, the angry father. Uh, and we, we're, we're reconciled to the father through through the son kind of going and, and interceding for, for, for us as if the father is uh, reluctant and needs to be brought around. But actually, Jesus is every bit as indignant as sin as the, as the father is. Jesus is every bit as just as, as the father. And, and yet within within the plan of redemption, as, as it works out in uh, space and time and history, uh, the that one the one triune God, uh, the, the persons take on these roles. And so the father is the one who uh, who pours out his wrath. The son is the one who offers up himself in the spirit. Um, but it's not as if the father is the only one who's wrathful and the son is the only one who's merciful. Um, and that, that's so important because it means uh, to, to deny that is to deny that we see God and Jesus. And actually coming up to Christmas, we'd want to say, you know, Jesus really is God with us. It's not a... It's not a. It's not misleading in any way. Um, Jesus really does reveal uh, both the justice and uh, the mercy and the love of God. Yes. Yeah. I think. Um, I mean that. This. It's truly amazing. God. God is revealed to us. God, the transcendent one that we uh, is unknowable, sort of in his essence, uh, is actually uh, truly revealed to us in Christ. And yeah, he in his humanity, even in, in his person, uh, shows us the character of God truly. Yeah, so I think that's that's really helpful, Sam. A couple of other things that it's probably worth touching on. So one would be um, the language of redemption that we saw in Article 31 of the 39 Articles. Um, this language of redemption is very central in the New Testament, and it's the idea of being bought back. And whenever we think about being bought back, we often, the redemption, we think a lot of times about the Exodus, God redeeming his people from slavery and from Pharaoh. And here, uh, that understanding of being bought back from slavery is, is a big thing in the New Testament. So the Bible is very clear that through our sin, our sin is sort of enslaving, it, it, it traps us and God liberates us from our slavery. And um, Satan also is the one who comes along and he tempts us and he also is the accuser. He accuses us in our sin and he points out the wrong things that we've done. And so whenever God redeems us from our sin, he also redeems us from the tyranny of the devil. And this gets us to um, sometimes a doctrine that's known as Christus Victor, that the main thing that's going on with the atonement is Christ's defeat of the devil. And we certainly would want to say that uh, Christ's defeat of the devil is absolutely central in the in the atonement. Uh, the Bible makes that very, very clear, talks about him uh, putting to shame uh, the principalities and rulers of this world his death on the cross and there's different models of how this is sort of brought about and um, one of the ones that's it's sometimes brought up is the kind of the ransom theory that uh, a lot of people in the early church in the medieval period held to which was almost the idea that god had to pay the devil uh, something that the devil was actually sort of owed something because of our slavery to sin um, and you see this even in the in the line of the witch in the wardrobe it comes through a little bit that aslan sort of pays uh, pays the witch a payment that sort of she was owed but i think we'd want to stay clear we'd, we'd certainly want to nuance and be careful about that doctrine satan has no right to anything ultimately um, he's no created nothing he um he owns 
truly owns nothing. Um, and so if we want to have a strong doctrine of God, I think we need to be careful about saying that the devil was actually sort of owed something. But if we hold to the doctrine of penal substitution and the idea that of, of Christ satisfying divine justice, we do have a way of understanding how Christ on the cross defeated the devil. One of the things that I think the Christus Victor model sometimes lacks is it gets the fact that Christ's defeat of the devil is central in the New Testament, but it sometimes is, is unable to explain how Jesus actually defeated the devil. Uh, but if we say that on the cross that Jesus removed our sin and took the punishment for us and offered up a perfect life that is then given to us and imputed to us, uh, then we can actually say, well, look, the devil is the accuser. Satan is the accuser. And his whole power and his whole enslaving power over us uh, is in this fact that he sort of accuses us of our sin and he enslaves us in that way. And if if Christ has offered us his perfect life, if he's borne the punishment that we deserve, then Satan no longer has anything to accuse us of. And so in that sense, he has put the rulers and the authorities into open shame. Uh, there's no longer, he, he might try and look at us and accuse us of sins, but actually Christ has offered himself in our place and therefore there's nothing ultimately to accuse us of. And so in that sense, Christ has conquered death, he's conquered sin, he's conquered Satan, he's conquered all of these things. And uh, he has vindicated himself. Sometimes people appeal uh, a little bit to Luther because Luther had a strong doctrine that... Um... Yeah, I've just loaded the quote up on my, my screen here. Go on ahead. Uh, yeah, Luther's great on this. Uh, he says, uh, So when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? Uh, for I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God. And where he is there, I shall also be. Yeah, so even that, it comes through in the hymn, doesn't it? Upward I look and see him there. Uh, the one who... Uh, who made an end to all, all my sin the one who made an end to all my sin, excellent you know where the Irish lyrics come through <laughs> indeed yeah and Luther even held um, Luther held to the view that the force, the demonic forces are themselves instruments of God's wrath so God has God has a purpose in uh, the forces of evil but if God's wrath is totally dealt with at the cross then those demonic forces have lost all of their power to trap us through the removal of our guilt and the propitiation of wrath. And then one final uh, model of the atonement that is sometimes brought up uh, really helpfully, I think, is sort of Irenaeus's recapitulation model. And this is the idea that uh, in Adam we fail, we, as he was our federal, the language, sometimes the letter languages of federal head, and we participated in that sin of Adam through a sort of mystical, mystical union of our participation in, in Adam. Uh, whenever he sinned against God, we participated in that. But, you know, as we trace the themes throughout the Bible, we can see ultimately Christ came as the second Adam who would overturn the work of the first Adam. And uh, in his death, he did everything that Adam couldn't do. He obeyed God fully, uh, where Adam disobeyed. He defeated uh, Satan, where Adam should have kicked Satan out of the garden. Christ was finally the one who defeated Satan and crushed his head and uh, he uh, took the curse that ultimately Adam was sort of unable to finally take and now through our participation our baptism uh, into Christ and our participation through faith in Christ 
we uh, can receive the fullness of his life that he offered to us as the second Adam. So this is, um, hope these thoughts have been edifying um, to those of you who are uh, listening at home. Uh, they've certainly been uh, really, truly edifying to me. And I hope that as we meditate on these themes, that Christ has satisfied divine justice for us. He's took the punishment that we deserve. Uh, he's redeemed us from sin and from Satan. And he's come as the second Adam. And through our participation in him, we can be uh, we can inherit eternal life hope. Yeah, as we meditate on these things uh, throughout the Christian life, that we grow in our love uh, for our Saviour, who through his life and through his death has accomplished a full, complete uh, and perfect salvation for us. Thanks, Ryan. Uh, when we draw stumps there and we'll <clears throat> we'll pray the, uh, the Collect for Good Friday to finish. Almighty God, we beseech thee graciously to behold this thy family for which our Lord Jesus Christ was contented to be betrayed and given up into the hands of wicked men and to suffer death upon the cross, who now liveth and reigneth with thee and the Holy Ghost, ever one God, world without end. Amen.